Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. Thank you all for your support. Taylor and I are both really happy to be making something that people enjoy listening to. It makes it much more fun to, uh, to make the show every week, knowing that people are out there enjoying it. So if you want to interact with us, uh, we, we love to do that. We're on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. We're on Instagram uh, at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. And our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon for the show. That is patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. We like to keep the show ad-free. Those are the kind of podcasts we like to listen to. So that's the kind of podcast we want to make. That money just goes back into making the show. Things like web hosting fees, research materials when those are needed, in general, contributes to the quality of the show. Uh, so we do appreciate all of our uh, Patreon supporters. Next uh, step here is uh, just to introduce my uh, my co-host here for the day, Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Pretty good. How about yourself? Going pretty well. I am Tanner, by the way. I don't <laughs> think I mentioned that in the intro to the show. Going uh, going really well. It's been a it was a busy Great. week. Yeah, it was a real busy week. That's why I didn't uh, do my show for the week. That's why you uh, stepped up and did another episode. That's why we're pulling the old switcheroo on the uh, the listeners here. They're hearing hearing my voice in the intro uh, two weeks straight. Yeah, it was a busy week, fun week. I went to I went to a concert for the first time in a long time. Nice. Um, a show. Cool people don't call them concerts. They're called shows. Um, <laughs> I went to see Electric Six in Green Bay. They were awesome, as usual, as expected. Uh, actually, the opening act was a band called Volk. Okay. Really, really awesome opening act. Probably the best opening act I've seen in a show that I've been to. Nice. Cow punk is the, I believe, the genre they build themselves as. But it was uh, really, really a great show overall. That was a fun time. My legs and my neck are still sore uh, several <laughs> days later. But yeah. Yeah, I'm going I'm going to a baseball game next week. So I'm like, kind of excited to, same thing, like get back to doing some normal things and, you know, do some fun experiences. Yeah, fun to get back out there before the Delta variant uh, takes over. Right, right. <laughs> so, all right. Well, today... Again, I kind of this is kind of a relatively hastily thrown together episode, but I think we've uh, I think we've got something good uh, for the people out there today. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, you know this one sounds interesting. I uh, wasn't sure what you were going to do on such short notice, but this one I think you crushed it. All right. So for some background here, just uh, preliminaries we're going to go through. So first, let's go back to a decade that I don't think we've covered yet. Correct me if I'm wrong. The 1980s. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so. Special time, the 1980s. Basically, uh, Stranger Things. That yes. They encompass the 80s. So our episode today also brings us to the northwestern coast of Spain. Okay. Specifically, we're going to Cape Finisterre. It's one of the westernmost points in mainland Europe. Um, Cape Finisterre, for, for anyone interested in you know maritime history, naval history, probably already knows Cape Finisterre. For those unfamiliar, Cape Finisterre is a very... It's a very well-known area for shipwrecks, naval engagements. A lot of ship-related history has happened at this point. The name itself actually means the end of the Earth. So yeah, it's kind of a big, important place in, uh, in continental Europe uh, as it relates to shipping. Several battles, like I mentioned, have been fought there. The most famous one was in 1805. This was basically a draw between the British and the Franco-Spanish fleet. Napoleon claimed, claimed is doing a lot of work here, that Admiral Villeneuve, uh, had he been a bit more audacious, Napoleon could have invaded and captured Britain. If that's true, the world will never know. 
but it's a it's a big deal in uh, in history, Cape Finisterre. Uh, so, in addition to uh, like I mentioned, military history, a lot of non combat related shipwrecks have happened here. Uh, Cape Finisterre has been known as the coast of death due to the large number of wrecks that happen in the area. The primary sources uh, that we'll we'll talk about in this episode, a lot of them will make use of that term, the coast of death. Uh, so that's uh, that is why it is uh, it is an appropriate name. Yeah, I actually couldn't have told you where it was on the map until looking it up today. And it kind of makes sense. It's probably a high traffic area. You got the Bay of Biscay kind of, you know, leading into that. Mm-hmm. You've got all the traffic going north to the United Kingdom and everything. Like, there's probably a lot of, uh, just a lot of vessels in the area. Yeah. It looks like it's a pretty treacherous coastline as well. Yeah, if you think of any any vessel basically going from, you know, anywhere in the Mediterranean to, say, a massive port like Rotterdam is going to have to go past this area. So in addition to the geography, we also today will need a little bit of a basic understanding of chemistry and or hazmat regulations. And that's one reason I I chose one reason I chose this episode, because I figured that would make you happy. Something that you already have quite a bit of experience with. Yeah, yeah. I I know a little bit about hazmat regulations. Your day to day job. I know you have to, to know a good bit about that stuff. Yeah, I definitely think we can dig into that a little bit later when we start talking about what is on the vessel and what's causing the problem. Oh, yeah. All right, so the uh, the star of the show today. Never good to be the star of the show. Not on this show. Mm. Uh, the focus of the show... Actually, that's a good idea. Maybe for maybe for, for a uh, maybe a bonus episode or something, or like a Christmas episode, we could do like something good or awesome that happened to a ship. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. But the focus today is a cargo ship called the Casson pronunciation I am not totally sure about. All of the sources where I actually heard this ship's name spoken out loud were in Spanish or Galician, and that is the pronunciation there. So I'm going to use that pronunciation. It could be the Quezon, the Quezon, I don't know. We're going to use, I'm going to use Casson. So the cargo ship Casson was owned by a company out of Hong Kong. That is the most information I could find. Um, it's, not, it's always great when there's no information about just, a, a company in Hong Kong. None of the news articles mentioned it. None of the retrospective accounts talked about who this ship was owned by. I couldn't find it anywhere. It's got to be out there somewhere. I just couldn't find it. Um, that's uh, it's always the source of a company like you know doing something right. Like that's how you know when there's no information available. Mm-hmm. So owned uh, by this company in Hong Kong, it was Panamanian flagged. Again, this kind of highlights for me like the confusing nature of ship registration and ownership. How a ship can be flagged in a country that it like never never even goes to or never has been to. Um, It can be registered in a city that it doesn't operate out of. It's it's yeah, that gets really weird. I know there's a lot of tax stuff going on. Like uh, most ships are registered in like you know other places than where they would operate. Yeah. So this uh, we're gonna jump right into the incident. I don't have a fun lead up story this week for, for this vessel. Again, I don't even know who it's owned by. So what it was doing before this, I have no clue. But what we do know is that in the early morning, specifically 4.55 a.m. on December 5th, 1987, okay. off Cape Finisterre, Casson sent out a distress signal reporting that there was a fire on board. At this point, she was en route from Rotterdam to Hong Kong with a crew of 31. This was... The later sources is where I, I took the destination and the point of origin from. Some of the earlier sources reported variations of this, sometimes being from Antwerp to Shanghai, 
it seems like Rotterdam to Hong Kong was the actual route, though. Wait, so they, uh, some sources have it, like, reversed, like, the direction that it was going? No, they have it, instead of coming from Rotterdam, they have it coming from Antwerp. Okay. Which I feel like, I to, to an American, those are the same place, basically, right? Yes. To Shanghai, instead of Hong Kong. Or variations on those. basically the same place. Again, we can just be Americans and say that they're the same place. Even though they're definitely not. So regardless, she's traveling on this uh, on this route. So let's pause here. We know, well, kind of, we know where she's going. Let's talk about what she's carrying on this trip that would ultimately become its final one. Uh, so most of the time, the vessels that we talk about on the show, most of the time, the stuff that they're carrying is not inherently dangerous unless it starts moving around. Like right. a train or a car, a car, you know, or I don't, iron ore. Whatever it may be, usually the stuff itself is not really dangerous. That is not the case here with the Cassone. We've got a solid list of hazmat stuff here that you were showing me the uh, the placards for earlier. Yeah. So we have our we have our inflammables. We've got xylene, butanol, butyl acrylate, cyclohexanone, and sodium. Sodium is an important supporting character in this drama. Uh, so keep that one in mind. <laughs> Toxins, we've got aniline oil, diphenylmethane diisocyanate, ocresol dibutyl phthalate. And for corrosives, we've got phosphoric acid and phthalic anhydride. I hope I did. I like phosphoric acid is always just like on these ships. It's just always something they have. I don't know what that is, but I know it sounds bad. I wouldn't put my hand in it. Um, <laughs> probably shouldn't. And uh, I hope I did okay with those pronunciations. Any chemistry people out there can correct me. That's cool. I would love to be corrected on those. Regardless, we've got a lot of, a lot of potentially dangerous stuff here. This will be a much more dangerous situation than some of her others when it comes to a disaster at sea. So I guess now is as good a time as any to talk about some of the hazmat stuff. Yeah, go for it. So like when you're working in shipping, obviously you're not a chemistry major, so you don't know what any of this stuff actually is. Mm -hmm. But it's all classified into like hazmat groupings. So like corrosives will have a certain placard so you know how to handle a corrosive if it leaks. Mm -hmm. Flammables, like, obviously, you know, like, you know, don't smoke near something that's flammable. Don't set it or on poison. fire. Right, like, poison would have to be separated from food product or something. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's not a matter of knowing specifically each individual chemical. Mm -hmm. It's more of a matter of knowing how to treat a class of things and what you need to do to separate them or package them correctly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Really, the most fun thing about this is the sodium, which was a sodium solid. That is a, in a class called dangerous when wet. <laughs> so that's uh, that's good for when you have a problem. It's a great. It's a great thing to store on the deck of a ship. I think. Yeah, um, I think the international placard calls it like water reactive substances, but what we call it, like in the United States, the placards we use, it literally just says dangerous when wet. <laughs> so <laughs> like you'll see them on trucks. They're like a blue placard. You see that? That's what that means. Like, literally, like, it's on fire when wet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's good to have on, on a ship. Oh, yeah. I I think yesterday on Twitter shared a video, a useful video, if you're interested in seeing it. It's like a high school-type science video of a guy putting sodium in water and seeing what happens. <laughs> so, worth checking out. So, an hour after the initial distress call, it was reported that the fire had burned out of control and that evacuation had been ordered by the captain. Keep that detail in mind. That, that 
is another sort of up in the air aspect of the story is, is how these things actually happen. Note that at this point, the rescuers were being dispatched to the scene, not aware at all of what the vessel was carrying. The rescue team only realized the nature of the cargo when they arrived on scene and saw some of the labels on the material stored on deck. Interesting. So they arrive on scene and they have this sort of, oh no, moment of this is a much bigger job than we kind of expected. So three helicopters, a tugboat, and some rescue launches, and a few other ships in the vicinity were engaged in the rescue operation. 23 bodies were recovered. One of these was reported dead from drowning, 22 dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. Which, I mean, I would assume that happened pretty quick. Right. Among those dead is the captain. So again, it, I, I don't know if it's ever made entirely clear if the captain ever issued a, a an evacuation order or if he was already dead by the time that the evacuation happened. Eight survivors were recovered from the water or from lifeboats. Uh, the crew had abandoned ship when the fire broke out. One survivor noted that he, he and another crewman had been in their bunks when they were awoken by an explosion and they heard the alarm going off. They did not wait for an evacuation order, he said. He said they knew that this was a bad situation and they immediately abandoned ship. So the crew has some awareness of what is being carried. It's it's apparent that they do. And and like you said, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, every crew member is not going to know every single chemical on this ship. But just given the way things are labeled, they're going to have some idea of what they're carrying. And that probably an explosion on board, a fire breaking out is going to be a bad situation. Um, so some of them, like I said, used life rafts. Others only had life jackets. One survivor noted that the life raft deployment mechanisms did not work. Some of them that's like a continued theme that we see that like when it gets to life-saving equipment mm -hmm. it's hard to count on it because a lot of times it doesn't work properly friend of the podcast malfunctioning life-saving equipment <laughs> so this is we, we kind of have a a little bit of a lull in the action here the survivors are recovered those eight survivors i believe i mentioned this earlier but the entire crew of this ship was chinese the crew in some news sources is labeled as being uncooperative. For me, that strikes me as kind of a loaded term, uncooperative, that, you know, being very difficult. This could be for several factors. One of them that seems to be implied by some of the sources is being reluctant to kind of divulge what's on the ship. You know, now that it had a problem and was on fire, they didn't want to say what was on it. I don't buy that explanation, really. It just strikes me as a weird thing. As we listed, it wasn't carrying anything illegal or right. like unregistered. So that I don't really buy that. I don't know why that would be. I think a slightly more possible situation is the language barrier. You know, these surviving crew, they're being spoken to in Spanish, possibly Galician, probably some English also. They may not be able to communicate very well at this point. I remember the captain. Yeah, they, that seems a lot more likely. The captain and probably a lot of the other higher ranking people are dead at this point. And a lot of this is, is probably the lower level crew. There's not a probably a good probability that they can communicate well with their rescuers. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, another one, obviously, is, is just confusion and shock. They've just been on this exploding ship. They've just been pulled out of this pretty cold water. I think I, I saw that it was about 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, in the water. I think that's like a, is it like 11 degrees Celsius, I think. There's a documentary that I'll link to that, that really shows this uh, in the immediate aftermath of the rescue. It shows their faces and just, you can just tell it, it doesn't matter 
you know, what they actually know or what they can actually communicate, they're all in shock mm-hmm. for, for obvious reasons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Again, we kind of mentioned this, a lack of awareness about what the ship actually carried. A survivor noted that only the captain knew the true nature of the materials on board. Again, that could mean various things. Maybe they didn't know exactly what they were carrying. They probably did know that it was dangerous or hazardous material. Yeah, I think that's also the captain's probably the one that has the most access to like the manifest that has technical documents and stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a regular crew member is just going to know, hey, that's corrosive or hey, that's flammable. Yeah, don't smoke here. So there was an attempt to tow the vessel to safety, but it got stuck on the rocks due to both the weather and the fact that it was still on fire. Hard to safely maneuver a vessel that is on fire. So she got stranded on the coast, much, much closer to the shore. Uh, She's basically just offshore at this point. They made efforts to contact maritime port authorities in Hamburg, Germany, in Rotterdam, and in Antwerp to establish what exactly was on the ship. Because as of right now, they, they really have no idea. They know it's some dangerous stuff that is currently in the process of possibly exploding, but they don't know what it is. So they contact those authorities, and they receive a shipping manifest from them, it seems like, pretty quickly. In that documentary from the uh, the Galician program Akasha Negra, the, the merchant marine director is standing there holding a copy of the shipping manifest. So pretty quickly, they know exactly what is on the ship, and they can get started with the process of dealing with it. So at this point, it gets established that the entire bottom of the ship has been damaged. It's basically just been ripped open uh, on these rocks. So there's water in all of these cargo holds. There's no way to move this ship under its own power at this point. It's done for. Smoke is still being observed coming out of holds one and two, with small quantities of oil spilling into the water. So again, this isn't like a tanker oil spill where you have massive amounts. This is just the fuel from the ship itself. Right, which I mean, still ecologically not great, but like what you would expect in a, right. a marine emergency or something. So obviously there's a concern about pollution. One of the chemicals on board, orthocresol, is classified as a marine pollutant. But as we sort of alluded to earlier, the, the most immediate threat at this point is from the sodium. So if you're a hazmat person, a chemistry person, if you watch that video I shared, you'll kind of see the issue of having all of this sodium in these big drums surrounded by and being immersed in water. It's going to explode. So they develop an action plan. Their first step of this plan is to remove the sodium from the deck and from hold one. That's kind of the first factor. If they can get that off the ship, they reduce a huge amount of the risk factor. Right. Next, they're going to unload the dangerous goods from the deck in the order of priority. Then they're going to transfer the fuel and then unload the holds beginning with the most dangerous material. So all of the stuff is not concentrated. There's various bits of this stuff distributed throughout the ship. Some of it's in hold one or hold two. Some of it's on deck. It's kind of... So this is all mixed. It's all over the place. I will will share the full diagram also on Instagram. There's a pretty comprehensive diagram of where these goods are loaded. And yeah, it's, it's really just all over the place. So that's the plan. That's the idea. So on December 8th through 10th, they're able to remove... 204 drums of orthocresol and 29 of formaldehyde uh, that are able to be taken off. The bad weather keeps up, though, and it stopped them from unloading the vessel. This is December on the northwest coast of Spain. Northwestern Spain is is not uh, it's not the beach in Barcelona that you might be picturing. It's rocky and, and the weather can be quite bad. Yeah, we were looking kind of playing around Google Earth before we started, and I was saying how it reminded me of like the, the Pacific Northwest or mm-hmm. something. 
you know, it's a very like rocky mountainous shoreline and it's definitely not tropical. Exactly. Yeah, like you said, like the, like the Mediterranean side of Spain is. Mm-hmm. So this ship is, is on these rocks. It's getting tossed around. Waves are coming over it. So in the following days, something rather unsurprising happened. That sodium starts to go off. <laughs> um, explosions occurred along the length of the ship as the drums of sodium reacted violently with the seawater. Uh, this caused some of the other flammable goods to ignite during the night of December 10th to the 11th. The entire deck of the vessel was on fire and exploding, basically. Also, sodium drums that had fallen into the water obviously reacted, too. And lucky enough, all of this is recorded live on television by reporters by reporters who, who are who are in the area. It's kind of nice, though, like in the 80s. I mean, it's not as common that you get these things filmed. It's like today where everyone could just, you know, whip out their iPhone and post it to Instagram or Twitter. Mm-hmm. So it's actually kind of fortunate, you know, for a um, kind of disaster examination point that you could actually record this and have it as a source for the future for training and things. Yeah, that makes it a very unique episode for us, at least so far, in that it's relatively modern. We have more or less instant communication. We have news crews on the scene. It's close to the shore. You can see it happening. Anyone who wants to come up, you know, from a local town can just come up and see what's happening. And that's not something we get in most of our stories that are on, you know, the open sea. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, you had got reporters on scene filming this, showing this thing exploding. It looks extremely bad. There's video of it. You can find on YouTube. It'll be in that documentary. Uh, it, it looks extremely bad when you see it. So on that note, as all of this has been developing over these past days, the media narrative, of course, is a big, big factor You know, in, in any story like this. So that possibility of a local panic is always present. Right. And that's what we're going to see here. So authorities attempted to assure local population that there's no immediate threat. They've consulted with chemists, they've consulted with marine scientists, they've consulted with all of these people who have come to the conclusion that there really is no inherent risk here. When this sodium burns off, stops exploding, nothing here is an immediate threat to anyone. None of it's going to react in a way that we need to really cause any sort of local panic. Right, because I imagine that the main concern is that you'd have some sort of a toxic cloud or something like that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to wake up and you know, it looks like a scene from a World War One battlefield or something. Mm-hmm. And also remember what year this is happening. This is 1987, which is the year after Chernobyl. So this is yeah, this is yeah. sort of so. in people's heads that yeah, when the authorities are telling you there's no reason to panic, maybe I should panic. So due to concerns from the populace, the government did decide to evacuate the area. This is a whole interesting story here in itself, kind of the way that information is shared how that information changes from person to person it's sort of like a big game of telephone in many ways so some of the issues that arose from this uh, this panic speculation had to do with the quote unquote true cargo on board this ship mm. uh, so this feels like a modern day thing where everything mm-hmm. has to be a conspiracy theory it does uh, so i'm quoting from a uh, an article in 2015 from the uh, the newspaper Bos de galicia Or I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, sorry. It's in translation. Rumors about the nature of the cargo, including those pointing to nuclear materials on board, and the explosions inside the ship spread a wave of hysteria that the administration, rather than calming, 
egged on by announcing on the night of December 10th the dispatch of a great fleet of buses to evacuate the population from the zone of risk due to a toxic cloud. So we have the government sort of... It, it's an interesting sort of back-and-forth game here. Something bad happens, the government says don't panic. The people start to panic. The government sees people panicking and thinks they're going to panic more if we don't do something that they want us to do. So we're going to give them a fleet of buses and tell them to evacuate. And that's going to make them panic more because now the government right. is telling us to evacuate. Well, and it almost seems like they're admitting to lying because it's like, well, if there's nothing wrong, why would you give us the buses? Right. It just seems like now now that we called you out, like you're going to do the thing we want, but it, it's because it really is a problem. Right. I also want to make a note, like the nuclear material rumors... In a way, I can kind of understand how they start. So, like, we're talking about with the hazmat classes. There's a radioactive class. Mm-hmm. And it's not, doesn't mean it's nuclear material. Mm-hmm. There's things that you use every day. I know, like, certain watch batteries mm-hmm. can actually technically have to be labeled as radioactive when they're being shipped. Mm-hmm. So, it doesn't mean, like, you're shipping nuclear components for a bomb or for, like, a, a reactor. Right. It can be very boring, like, benign things. Mm-hmm. But if you see that on a shipping manifest and you don't know what you're looking at, it's really easy if you're like a news person to be like, there's nuclear material on board this vessel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, or, yeah, I mean, a reporter, someone watching at home, I mean, this is, you know, being broadcast live. uh, So anyone seeing anything on the ship, like you said, that they think, you know, is is labeled as nuclear material, they could take that and run. I think also you have to be really careful reading the technical documents when you're not a chemistry or, you know, someone educated in chemistry. Mm -hmm. A lot of things sound really similar. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like one little prefix or suffix could mean something completely different. Right. As far as these chemicals go. So if you scan it and think you see something and report it, like you, you may not be reporting all the mm-hmm. facts. Sometimes it is, in fact, better to listen to the experts and the people who've studied these things their whole lives. Yes. <laughs> Rumors also circulated that the ship had made secret or unreported stops in ports to load cargo that wouldn't be listed on the shipping manifest. So again, total total rumor. There's no evidence that this happened. The oh. thing about it is, though, like that does happen. Um, like with that ship in Beirut, that's sort of what happened mm-hmm. there—the one that exploded in the harbor. Mm-hmm. They had had like material that wasn't reported or whatever on there, mm-hmm. and that's when it got detained in the port when they found all of the uh, like fertilizer and stuff on there. So like mm-hmm. that is a thing that happens. But I mean, if you just are reporting that it may be a thing, like you don't really have any facts backing it up. You're just reporting rumors. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like stacking one on the other. It's like, oh, if they made an, an unreported stop, what were they picking up? Nuclear bombs. Right. So uh, again, as we mentioned before, there's reports of a, quote, toxic cloud. People were obviously concerned about this. They saw those images on television. There's a lot of vapor in the air when that thing is going off all of that fire all those things exploding you could be excused for not being comfortable you know being very close to that uh so people fled any way they could we talked about those buses people who had cars took cars people were fleeing on foot the evacuation though ended after i think after a day even some people started coming back because it was established that there's no immediate threat to the area so again if you're one of these citizens now you're sort of extra angry it's like what why did you have us evacuate just so you could have us come back the next day like right yeah i i don't know it's a tough situation so on december 12th it was verified that no toxic gases were being released and that all of the sodium had burned off they kept running into issues though restarting the removal and salvage process the weather stuff getting thrown overboard that they had to sort of track down or at least you know keep track of where it was going to go 
they kind of did this piecemeal for a few months because of how the cargo had shifted and the rough weather. Eventually, they kind of just said, you know, forget this, forget trying to sort through all this stuff and pick out what we want. So they got a big crane with a, a grabber on it and just tore open the deck and sides of the ship. <laughs> and just started grabbing stuff out of it, basically? Uh, basically, yeah, saying we don't, we're not going to fight through all this stuff. We're just going to rip the top off of this uh, and get the stuff out that we want to get out. Uh, so by March 12th, the removal was declared complete. All of the dangerous goods were off of the ship. One of the more positively surprising parts, one of the bright spots, is that only three minor injuries were sustained by the salvage crew. This took place over the span of a few months. Rough weather, you've got all these dangerous materials. Only three people were slightly injured. Yeah, yeah that's pretty impressive. Pretty well done. Uh, so back to the issue of pollution. No major air pollution was detected, and water pollution never reached a high concentration due to the nature of the spillage. Nothing was coming out in mass quantities. It never really reached a high concentration. Air pollution, you know, they noted that there were some spots on the ocean that was concerning people. It turned kind of a yellow, I think they called it yellow moose type of uh, substance that had formed. Mm -hmm. They noticed, you know, birds are flying over this thing. There, there's no environmental issues here. So none of those problems came up. We talked about the clouds from the reaction of the sodium. All of those white plumes going into the sky that were concerning people was basically just water vapor. Right. From that the sodium was, you know, burning off. Right, because the, the risk there is the explosion, not really a, a poisoning issue or yeah. anything like that. Yeah, it's all it's all water vapor. So some of the more aftermath of this story, you know, despite you know, scientists affirming that there's no there's no significant water pollution, this is not a big deal, marine life is fine, fish are fine, shellfish are fine, all everything's gonna be fine. They did suspend fishing uh, in a 10-mile radius as a precaution for some time. A source noted that despite being declared totally safe, the fishing industry in the area was pretty negatively affected. People just didn't want to risk it. So that, right. that was a big hit to the economy, which because that's a big part of their economy. Yeah, I would imagine at that point, it's really just the perception. You know, you don't, it could be as safe as anything else. But if people associate it with this disaster, they don't want it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably be at least a little bit reluctant in that situation. This just happened. I'm probably not going to pull up a fish out of the water right there and, you know, fry it up. But uh, yeah, that's, that's understandable, I guess. So actually, in 2002, another incident would occur right in this same vicinity, one that some of our listeners have probably heard of. Uh, it's the much more famous and far more destructive prestige oil spill. Mm, yeah, I have heard of that. Yeah, the Prestige is a bad one. This is a true environmental catastrophe. Worse than that of the Exxon Valdez, just because of the amount of oil and the the toxicity of the oil because of the water temperature. Really? I didn't realize the water temperature played a role in that. Yeah, I believe just because the water temperature for the Valdez was so cold, it didn't it didn't have the same effect it might have otherwise. Yeah, huh. that's that's a bad one. The Prestige oil spill is a is a really terrible environmental catastrophe. That would warrant its own episode on various different types of podcasts. Um, yeah, yeah, it definitely would. In, uh, in 2012, so there's a, one of the sources I used was an opinion piece from uh, Jose Antonio Mariedo. He was the former director of the Merchant Marine. He was a director at the time. If you watch that Black Box documentary that I'll share, you'll see him quite a bit in that. He says, quote, uh, and he was writing since 2012, just kind of as a reflective piece, looking back on the time, reacting to some of the things that he had seen people still saying about this incident, some of those rumors and conspiracy theories and things. So he said, quote, 
There's no reason to invoke Chernobyl or the atomic bomb, and much less reason to create phantom voyages of the Kasson and mysterious cargo in the holds. This has been fully demonstrated over time. Comparing the Kasson accident with that of the Prestige is pure literary fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think he's making some good points there. It's like, there's no reason to make this worse than it really is. Like, it's already enough of a tragedy, A, on the human level, and then B, like, it's, it is not great for the environment, but you don't have to make it into something worse mm-hmm. than what it actually is. It can be tragic on its own. Yeah, exactly. And as he points out, like, there's no reason to even mention this and the prestige in the same sentence. Or Chernobyl for that matter. Yeah, there, there's, there's absolutely, this is not on par with any of those things. It seems to be a story that recurs and comes up and gets mentioned, you know, every five years, every 10 years around the anniversary. And I think that, you know, reporters and journalists get a lot of mileage about those out of those types of stories. But in this case, it's, it doesn't really seem like an appropriate comparison. Uh, yeah, it, it is a it is a, a tragic situation, as are all of the things we talk about on the show. I mean, those crew members who lost their lives seem almost forgotten in a lot of the stuff that you read because the focus is all on the the potential environmental factors that never really come into play. The focus is always right. on the, you know the townspeople, the citizens of Spain, and yeah, I mean the, those crew members you you don't see their names anywhere if they're recorded anywhere. They're more or less forgotten about in, in the grand scheme of the story. Uh, I think it is interesting though. Like this is the first one that we've done where we kind of talk about environmental stuff mm-hmm. and it probably is like a good way to like dip our toe into the water here. And cause I'm sure we'll do more. We may look at doing like the Exxon Valdez or uh, prestige at some point in the future. And yeah, we haven't really talked about like the environmental impact of shipwrecks, mm-hmm. but you think about it. In this case, the cargo is heavily involved, but even in a regular shipwreck, the amount of oil and different chemicals that are being put into the environment, mm-hmm. like it's, it's not great, yeah. especially when it happens near shore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is definitely a factor. We, I don't think we've probably ever touched on that at all. Yeah, and that's kind of why I like doing these, because like every shipwreck, you can kind of find a different part of the story that you know, is unique or something. And mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're at with this one, is, is kind of touching on that environmental piece. Yeah, this is a story also that we sort of alluded to earlier. This this is a story where I really find myself wondering about how would this story have gone down? How would it have been reported and discussed in the era of social media? Like if, right. if this, if this was going down while we had Twitter to talk about uh, a bit like obviously different situation, but kind of how the, the Suez canal situation happened where, you know, Everyone sees this picture and everyone starts tweeting about it. People who have never thought or talked about ships on Twitter in their life are suddenly talking about this ship. And this is right. kind of similar in that it plays out over the course of days and weeks. And it, it, w- it would be interesting to, to think about, like, how, how would this have played out on Twitter? Just given how prevalent and how strong the conspiracy theories and rumors were around this well before the age of hashtags and things like that. Yeah, I think... like. Yeah, in, like, the age of posting that we're in, like, how easy it is to get, like, a truther movement behind mm-hmm. any kind of an event. Like, it would be very interesting to see how how this is handled, because there would probably be, you know, the kind of alternate fact kind of people out there pushing a narrative that, that involves, you know, Chinese government involvement or something like that. Mm-hmm. Actually, a small detail I think I forgot to mention. I, I skipped over it in the notes. One of the... 
one one of the major proponents of the rumors, kind of one of the sources of these things, was actually the mayor of one of the towns in the area, and that kind of really? that kind of got a lot of people on board with this. The fact that the mayor was was saying this. If you watch that documentary, which I, I recommend, it's in Galician. If you if your Spanish is pretty good, Galician is not that hard to understand. Even if your Spanish isn't particularly good, you can probably pick up quite a bit. You know, the the vibes, basically. What is a foreign language, but just, you know, vibes. Definitely check that out. You'll they interview some of the some of the mayors. It's interesting to see how active the mayors are in these small towns. You know, they're out in the streets with people protesting and yelling at these national government officials. And in some cases, that's good. In some cases like this, uh, with this particular mayor, maybe that's not so good because he's <laughs> he's he's one of the big engines behind this this rumor mill. But yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting thing that I would recommend all of our listeners check out. Nice. I think that's all I've got for this one. It was a little little quicker episode, kind of kind of hastily done. But I, I think we I think we really touched on all the stuff that we needed to cover. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you kind of I know you kind of had short notice on this one, but I think you did great, and it was again fun that we could touch on a topic that we haven't really talked about, and in a location that we haven't really done. I don't think we've done Spain, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. I think it was great. I think it was a it was a good one. Definitely some stuff to think about, and kind of gives us some more stuff to talk about in the future with uh, more of the uh, ecological disasters and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, I guess we'll just say thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week with something for you.